Welcome to Meet the Investors, the podcast that helps you get to know the people behind the investment deals. Find out the things you need to know, but you won't find on their website. Ideal for entrepreneurs looking to secure investment, whether that's now or in the future. Brought to you by EHE Capital and Investor Ladder. So hi, everybody. Welcome back to, I was going to say another episode of the podcast, but actually it's our first one in this new series, which is a Meet the Investor series. So I won't talk too much about it. I'm going to hand over to two familiar people today. So I'm joined by Gordon Bateman and Ben Davis from Petura Ventures. Gordon, I'm going to kick off with you. Hi, welcome back. Hi, thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. Been away for a little bit over the summer, have you? Clearly, just getting the most of the sun. Well, it's it. Brilliant, brilliant. So what we thought today is we'll start the series off by talking to some of the investors that obviously you and Investor Ladder have been working with. I know we're delighted to still be running a programme of events and we've got those coming up over the next few months. So we thought that what this would do would be a really good way of helping people that attend Investor Ladder and entrepreneurs find out a bit more about, you know, meet the investors. What are they like? What do they like? What do they dislike? What are the things that stand out for them from an entrepreneurial point of view? And then Ben, we're delighted to welcome you as well as first time on the ehe podcast is it today yep thanks so much for having me. thank you thanks for joining us so i'll hand over to you gordon do you just want to do a, a little bit of an intro about the history that investor ladder and, and pretura have and then we can kick off with ben telling us a bit more about pretura ventures yeah sure thank you for that ben it's great to have you here obviously we've worked together over a number of years in different angles whether that be through accelerator programs and deals etc one of the things that I've always been really impressed with Pratura is not just the people in the team and the way you operate, but the commitment to the region and expanding and working. And then when you're in businesses, of course, that it's more than money. It's actually working to accelerate their growth. So it'd be great rather than me prattle on about that to hear that from you and your vision and where you see the business going, if that's all right. Yep, sure. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. So to give you a bit of a background on Pratura, we've been going since 2011, but in our current form since 2019. Since then, I think we've raised about 125 million, done about 50 investments in total. That's anything into tech, life sciences, health businesses, sort of Anything that's sort of tech enabled, we'll, we'll generally have a look at. We've got a preference for the North. We're the only VC to focus solely on the North of England within our early stage anyway, because we've noticed that there's a real gap for that. You know, if you're looking for seed stage funding here, that's not necessarily very difficult. But if you're looking for that sort of funding that gets you to sort of the larger ticket item, then that can be really quite difficult. So obviously there's quite a lot of private equity here, but but not that sort of Series A, Series B level of funding. And our kind of goal is to find and back exceptional founders, help them build the best business they can, and then bring the investors closer to the portfolio through open and transparent communication. So the whole goal here is we want to kind of be the sort of founder first, like VC of choice for people. And that's the vision. But how that actually looks is we've put a number of different things in place to help who we invest in build the best business they can. So that's through a number of different ways. So for example, we've appointed operational partners who are like industry heavyweights who are previously exited founders or those who've held leadership positions in big brands like Apple, Doc Martens, Coop Bank to effectively mentor and actively support founders through their scaling journey. So either helping them use their own network to crack into other countries or facing problems of culture, facing challenges of tech or scaling. And we've got different 
operational partners who kind of float between different portfolio companies at different times and add value in different ways, if that makes sense, based on their specialism. We've also built something called a portfolio toolkit that is, we've used kind of our collective buying power to sort of purchase or at least organize discounts or sort of arrangements with sort of tried and tested partners. So for example, we recently had a portfolio company join and within two months, I think they'd saved about 180 grand. And, you know, that's money that could be going into, into growth. And then Finally, there's kind of support that we give them internally. So we've got a HR function, a marketing function, a people function, and a compliance function internally, all of which are sort of at their disposal. So for example, our team in the marketing department quite regularly is in touch with each of the lead marketing people within the portfolio. We've got a WhatsApp where we pass ideas back and forth from one another. You know, we're a second pair of eyes on a press release. We might collaborate and do deep dive videos into sort of their specific story and just try and support them as best they can. So uh, so one of the things that's really interesting about me doing that is it's fit for purpose for a growth business. It's not just a cookie cutter approach that is more geared to bigger organizations. It's very appropriate. One of the things I've seen, going back to when you were saying about operating partners, you vet those operational partners. You make, you know, just because someone's been in a big brand doesn't mean they're a great support vehicle for a growth business. So take that back a step. I've just been asked a question by one of our new interns, which I thought would be a great question to ask you, you know, is how do you know that one of these businesses that you're bringing in is going to be successful? So what type of business stand or entrepreneur stands out for you when you go back before you invest? What, what do you look for in the business, in the person, in the opportunity? One of the things we've tried to do with this is be as transparent as possible, because I think a lot of investment can be a bit sort of behind closed doors and no one really talks about it. So we've actually written this out. So it's on our website. So there's investment playbook and it's a you know big old document that explains exactly what we're looking for. And we have a six M's kind of criteria that we go through. So model market and money make the sort of initial filter, then kind of management and momentum in the selection filter. And then finally, it's that more than money filters. So, you know, things we will look for. Is the market opportunity big enough? What impact will the money have and where have they got up to at this point? You know, is the management team exceptional, whether that be previous experience, the approach to how they're doing it? What momentum have they seen? You know, every VC loves a curve that goes from bottom left to the top right. You know, we limit everyone's deck, but genuine real momentum. So measuring the things that matter most and showing your potential with that is really important. Likewise, how can we then support? We've, whether popular or unpopular, turned down deals based on the fact that we don't think we're the right VC for them. I think that there has been a distrust between founders and VCs back and forth in the market. And we're, we're trying to be as open and honest as we possibly can do in terms of what we're looking for. So some tips, advice in terms of how to sort of speak to these things or maybe how to access them. I was speaking recently to some of the guys from Financial, who I know obviously we all know. And one of the key tips that they had was engage them as early as you possibly can. Don't speak to a VC when the end of your raise is within two or three months, because that's not how you've built a relationship with the investor. You know, check in with them, ask for some advice, talk to them about what you're doing and sort of bring them on along the journey with you. It's so much easier when it's a little bit warmer and someone feels a little bit more connected to what you're doing. Another huge one, find a VC that actually does what you do. Because lots of people say I've had a thousand no's and it's like, well, if you look at each of the individual websites, actually they're quite explicit with what they do sometimes. So for example, if you're not an EIS qualifying business, we can't invest in you. If you're not 
So we've got two different funds, an EIS fund and a GMCA life sciences fund by Petura. Those have specific parameters, both on location, industry, EIS qualifying or not. We look to invest one to three million. If you're raising 200K, we're not the people for you. Likewise, if you're raising five million, we're probably not the people for you or, or looking for five million from us individually. But generally spending time on a deck, engaging them as early as you possibly can, telling you story with compassion and sort of putting your sort of your best foot first in terms of what you think the potential is. Like VCs want to believe founders. I also think you have to be honest about your risks because there's so many decks we see now that have got no risks whatsoever. And it's like, you're an early stage business. Of course you have risks, right? You wouldn't be doing this if you didn't have risks. You know, you've got to be a bit mad to do this, right? So be honest about what's in front of you and show how you're going to approach them because ultimately your business is going to take twists and turns during the time we're together, right? How you look at your risk now is actually more important than the risk itself because it's a trust in the management team to make the right decision when something comes up in front of them, if that makes sense. I see the same thing all the time. And the other I see is they've got no competitors. They draw the dual the dual axis and there's no competitors in the quadrant that they're in, which makes to me think they've not done their research. And do, do you see that in your... Yeah, absolutely. I think there is that you've got to think. So we try and make sure that we treat every founder who applies to us with the same degree of respect, right? We'll make sure that they get some feedback. We'll point them in the other direction if we can't help them. However, we see 200 applications a month, right? So a healthy dose of realism in some of them and a sort of sensible approach to a large opportunity that's got hurdles in front of it is refreshing compared to this, something that's that feels unachievable, if that makes sense. And I think that's a really interesting point because the, out of the, the investors that are in the Investor Network, you guys are great at giving that feedback. But I also think sometimes there's an, an unrealistic expectation often coming from the, ind- not the investment, but the support industry that VCs should give lots of feedback. But you can't. We, if you think of a VC's buying part of your business, a VC is like a customer in some respect. We don't get loads and loads of feedback from customers who say no. So I think there needs to be a real, as I say, you're the the, the, the the end that gives good feedback. But I think there needs to be an understanding by founders that the VCs just are seeing a high volume of stuff. So there's a, there's a limit to what you can do, isn't there? I completely agree with you. However, I also think that there is sometimes a disconnect between the founder community and the VC community. And I think that that disconnect is partially a VC's fault as well, because we've seen a lot of people have very bad experiences with VCs, even after they've invested with them, which has created a little bit of this distrust. So I think that particularly when you see VCs saying they're not sure where to deploy the money, it's like, well, you need to support the ecosystem that you're part of and not just sort of feed off the top end of where the cream of the crop rises towards you, if that makes sense. Like we're actually producing a piece of research at the moment. And one of the things that we found was, particularly in the North, one of the things that founders want most is more events and active networking with their peers and with people who are in a similar situation to those. So obviously, Nari and Gordon, I know you both are playing an active part of that as two people who are actively orchestrating those sorts of networks. For me, any VC or investor who has an interest in this region and its potential high growth opportunities should be being active within those two spaces to bring that conversation closer to the head and actually get more exposure to the founders and give them more feedback. And, and 
for obvious reasons, I million percent agree with that because that's what investor lottery is doing. And part of the reason, going back to that experience piece, part of the reason why investor lottery is invite only is there are people who've come into the market who are bad actors as investors because for one reason or another. And and going back, just dissecting what you think is standout, one of the things you were saying was get involved with the investors early. Not does that only help you the investor understand your business. It helps you understand the investor. Are they the right partner to go with? Because once you've got an investor in your business, and again, we've seen this in multiple cases, it's they're in and then they're bad actors when they're in. They're not performing well. And so I, I million percent agree that engagement all the way through the process has to be aligned. I understand the customer's analogy because you're right. There is a purchase part of a business, right? Andy Round, who heads up our life sciences and health investments and the new GMC fund, he kind of says it's more like a marriage than anything else. Like ultimately, you've got to have that relationship with your investor where you can be open and honest with them. You could go for a drink with them. You don't feel nervous about telling them bad news. Like you know that they're going to kind of be in the trenches with you when things go wrong, because undeniably they have to go wrong. Even businesses who have got ridiculously high growth then have other problems like hiring or you know, expansion globally or maintaining that growth. So, so you will always face new things, new challenges or certain issues. You got to have the right relationship with your investor. And I think that having spoken to lots of founders recently, as part of this research, a lot of people, you know, seed stage take on investment because they just want the money. Mm. And what happens then in series A, series B, where you start to get more traction in the market and you start to open up your options in terms of what kind of investors you can work with, you realize actually that first marriage you had wasn't perhaps the first love you expected it to be. And actually it can cause then issues in these next funding rounds because a very, very early investor has been really difficult with these next stages, which will help your business grow. Which can reiterates the point of starting early because people do take quick money or cheap money because they've left it too late. And then all the more important things that you see that you're talking around, the things that you guys at mature bring to the table get forgotten about, you know, they're all, people get blinded by a ridiculous valuation that comes to buy to run. So it is doing your homework and understanding and getting the right, because I, I really like the marriage analogy apart from in a marriage, I've been married for 30 years, so I don't suffer from this, but you can't get divorced with your investor, whereas in a marriage you can, you know, it's much, so it, it's kind of almost a marriage on steroids. So yeah, yeah. and, and homework yeah. is critical, maybe. Yeah, com- yeah, completely. A great way of looking at this as well. I really rate what Joe at Landscape's doing. So Landscape are the glass door for VCs, if you like. So you can go on and see what portfolio and non-portfolio founders have felt from their experience from dealing with that VC. You know, and likewise, if that VC or investor isn't on on Landscape, I'd also recommend doing your due diligence on them. So before you take money go and speak to their portfolio and not the first three that they put forward. Go and find the ones that they don't put forward and ask them, how have they been? Because you want someone, you know, it's it's easy to coach a star or to work with a star. It's not as easy to deal with someone who's sort of having a difficult time. And actually, I think the measure of how an investor works is how they treat both sides because one day someone's a star and next minute they're not. And the next minute someone who's having a tough time has really accelerated. So that's something to really take note before you sell part of your business to them. 
Absolutely. That makes sense. And thinking about that and going into the founder side of things, two questions in one, pre-investment and post-investment. What do you see as some of the common mistakes? That's probably a bit of a harsh word, but you know, some of the common errors that people make pre-investment when they're talking to investors and post-investment once the money's in. Pre-investment is quite interesting, actually, because I think at the moment that there are businesses who are engineering their entire company around raising money, which is not what a company's actually meant to do. Some companies need money to do what they want to do, and that completely makes sense. But the idea of bootstrapping or trialing certain things or getting to a certain stage is almost completely ruled out now. We've seen these incredibly polished decks that are perfectly done, and they've clearly had an incredible amount of time spent on them by very clever people, very capable people who clearly understand the USP. But the actual business underneath it isn't necessarily as developed as it could be because clearly the effort has gone into funding. So I think generally, you know, funding's not that difficult. Like VCs are fairly straightforward beasts, right? As long as you fit within their criteria, actually, you know, they're looking at something that's doing this much today that's going to do that much tomorrow and will be attractive to someone potentially to buy it, right? Like it's not really actually not that difficult despite all the sort of big words that are there to kind of confuse people around the culture, right? So I think business basics and showing traction, showing defensibilities, showing where you've got to and what the vision is and and how you're going to approach that in a concise, compelling way is really important. And I think that generally now people have got so good at raising money that you can tell almost when it feels too professional, if that makes sense. And then post-investment, post-investment's a tricky one, I suppose, but I think understanding that the choices you make now with your team and the way that you make an impression on them and the standards you set are so much easier to get right earlier on than they are to change later. We have seen some really painful scenarios where a company scaled to a certain amount of people. You can't be that friendship group working on the same thing together all the time with each other. You have to hire people and give them careers, right? Like you have to hire people who are better than you around you to build what you're doing. I think quite quickly, the best founders understand that if they are to scale and grow quickly and go from 20 to 40 to 80 to 160, whatever people over the next X years, how they act and the habits that they form early doors post-investment and when they're in that scaling journey will shape the rest of their company and save them. Not only will it make it a nice place to work, it'll help you in PR, it'll help you in recruitment, it'll help you in marketing, it'll help you in business development. Loads of these different things matter. And often when founders are first given money, they go, right, what am I going to spend this to get those results that I said that I was going to hit? in the debt that I invested with initially. Well, obviously you're going to do that. That's part and parcel of of raising money, right? You've got more money to accelerate the growth of your business. But I think one thing that sometimes can be forgotten is creating business as usual habits that are best practice that will form the right habits moving forward. And that's everything from being sensible with people's working hours to trying to show flexibility to thinking about what the values are, because ultimately a set of values, what they do for you is ensure that while you're not looking, your employees do what you think they should and how you're happy with how they represent the company. And people kind of, I think sometimes can discount them a little bit, but actually they're incredibly important. So I think that it also 
acts as your own hiring filter, right? If people don't really agree with it, generally they tend to disappear after a while because it doesn't like suit them personally. I think the other thing I see is there's a lot of energy in building a relationship with a VC pre-deal and forgetting that the VC is part of your team post-deal and that transparency and working with VCs as part of your team and getting the value again, going back to things that if you've got the right VC or providing more than money, remember they're, they're part of your team and don't just, it's a bit like the, the last slide on a deck, isn't it? He's exit. And as soon as the money comes in, that slide gets taken off. Do you know, it's, it's that kind of mind. Going back to some of the things you were talking about before, because I'm conscious of time, you mentioned about team and we've talked a lot about people. You said one of the things you look at is the management team. Does it need to be complete when they come to you, uh, Procura or? What do you look at in that? It completely depends on the business, right? Different founders are in different places. We have invested in businesses where we don't really understand the company that much. Forgive me for saying that, but the management team's exceptional and they've done it before and they've got a track history and the business makes sense and, and all of it kind of fits. But the thing that's really attracted to you is this exceptional management team that have previously done something similar and they've kind of formed this you know, squad who are set to succeed. Simultaneously, there are one person companies that have got the people around them that they've got to this point with, but they're going to have to hire the best in the business or more senior people to take them on that next journey. I previously was at a company called Social Chain. You know, Steve and Dom will be the first to tell you that, you know, they were the two that started this social media powerhouse that could get millions and millions of views each week. But they were the first to tell you that actually they weren't ready to scale a marketing agency or a media publishing house or grow into different countries. And actually they hired other experts from within the industry to come and help them and hire people who are better than them and more senior than them that then made a really formidable management team because it blended both sides. So it, it completely depends. And then obviously that would vary as well based on pre-seed, seed, series A, series B, because you would expect kind of different levels of development based on what sort of stage you're at in terms of your funding round. Absolutely. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because you cover such a spread, there's never any one size fits all, which again, I think is what you guys are really good at. We could talk about this all day, Ben. Thank you very much for doing this. But one last question, uh, maybe a closing comment, really. If there's, out, out of all of this and maybe things we haven't had time to talk about, if there's one piece of advice you could give to founders in the zone of raising funding of where you fit, what would that pearl of wisdom be, do you think? Contextualizing a no from a VC is really important. A no might not be a no forever. A no might be no for now, but later on, you know, it might be of interest. I think generally investors and VCs want to believe you. And I think when you walk in a room with that level of confidence and pitch and, and are persistent with that kind of confidence that you've got a good business and eventually someone will believe in that vision and go for it, I think is really critical for a founder's sort of general resilience and their ability to eventually raise money. That's awesome. Cause I think that's a real, I do see people who think a no means I'm not investable as opposed to I'm not investable, but particularly when we're in the North and it's a relatively small pool of investors. I've never heard someone say that before, but I think it's, you know, really, really valuable advice. Thank you very much for that, Ben. That's, that's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's been great to speak to you. I'm sure we'll speak again many times, but thank you for your time and, and thank you again. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks both of you. That, I think that was the easiest podcast I've ever done. Just like sat back and let you two chat. It was great. We will link, Gordon, we did do a podcast all about Investor Ladder, didn't we? So we will link that into the description below. 
anybody is interested, obviously, in finding out a little bit more about Embethalada or Petura or Ben, we'll link all of the LinkedIn profiles, etc. below. And Gordon, if they are interested in taking part or in any of the Embethalada series that are coming up, the, the events, they can register on the website. Is that right? That's correct. So InvestLiner's website has sections for investors and for companies who are looking for investment now. So that's the best place to connect. Brilliant. So we'll we'll include that on there. And obviously stay tuned for more insights over the coming weeks. Hopefully they'll all be as good as Ben's. I'm sure they will be. <laughs> Set the bar high. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Ben. Please remember to subscribe and review. Visit the ehe.capital website and investorladder.com for the latest news, events and insights on all things entrepreneurial and investment. See you next time.